Spirit of the living God. It is not lost on this messenger that the message is nothing without the infusion of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that you would take these words and by the power of the Spirit of God, bring them into our minds and into our hearts, refresh our souls, challenge our wills, and enable us, O God, to submit to the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of slogans that you're familiar with that issue from the time of the American Revolution. You'll remember things like, give me liberty and, or give me death from Patrick Henry, or no taxation without representation. I don't know who said that, but it shows up on the license plates of people from Washington, D.C. these days. <laughs> give me liberty or give me death from the uh, call, or the, excuse me, don't tread on me, actually, from one of the militias and Never trust a redcoat, said Paul Revere. I don't see any redcoats in here, so we're okay. Benjamin Franklin said, join or die. And then, of course, there are the words that introduce our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with with unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson uh, coined those words, adapting them from the work of John Locke. Uh, John Guest, who was a, an Anglican evangelist who came over in the United States in the 1960s, was aware of some of those slogans, and he eventually became pastor of the, uh, one of the Episcopal churches in Sewickley, Pennsylvania. But before then, he was starting his ministry in the Philadelphia area, and he was scrounging around some antique stores, and he came across a placard that also contained one of those American Revolutionary War slogans. And that said this, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. The colonists were rejecting the rule of King George III, whose policies sought to exact financial gain for the home country at the expense of uh, people who had no say in their execution. Uh, but not only did the colonists reject the taxation policies, they rejected the very right of the king to reign over the colonies. And so it is a reminder, we are as Americans these days, aliens to living under the authority of a king. In the Revolutionary War's days, those were, that was not the norm. No matter the country, there was always a king. There was always an emperor or a czar or whatever. And the significance of the American Revolution should not be lost on us. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette put it this way, humanity has won its battle, liberty now has a country. And as old as all of us are, none of us were around for the American Revolution, I don't believe. <laughs> and the notion then of living under a king is as foreign to us as eating kimchi for breakfast. 
Maybe some of you eat kimchi for breakfast. I, I, I really don't mean to offend you. But the point is we have no idea what it's like to be subservient to a monarch. Now, there are still monarchies around the world, as you are aware. Great Britain currently has Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, but that monarchy has very little real power. It's primarily ceremonial in its role and only influences by virtue of her moral persuasion, which can be quite considerable. The queen, however, you might be interested to know, is shared by 14 other independent countries in the Commonwealth of Nations, including, by the way, Canada. Did you know that the Canadians have a queen? They do. But even in those cases, the monarch wields very little real power. So for the world of the Bible, that is not the case. Kings in the Bible are pervasive. They're all over the place. But for those of us who were born in these United States, we serve no sovereign here. Uh, we do not know what it's like to live under the oppression of the whims of a despot. And that's despite the contemporary political rhetoric, which almost always characterizes the other political party of some form of tyrannic despotism. But no matter how reprehensible our leaders might seem to be, there are checks and balances in our system. There's a limit to what a president can do. Congress holds the purse strings. Congress makes laws. The Supreme Court interprets those laws. And even the most active of executive ordering presidents, and we've had a number of them recently, are subject to some barriers and controls. But the world of the Bible is the world of kings. And so our experience with a democratic republic makes it very difficult, quite honestly, to be a Christian. Because the bottom line is God is the king and God reigns and he rules, as, rules over a kingdom. But we have so little human reference for such a kingdom. And when we do experience a kingdom-like government, it's usually nothing like the true kingdom of God. Our text this morning reminds us of kingdom principles and ultimately the person and work of Jesus establishes a kingdom and it establishes Jesus himself as the king of that kingdom. We're in John chapter 19. We've been through in John chapter 18 two of the trials of Jesus, the Jewish and the Roman trials. The Jewish trial rendered him guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. The Roman trial Pontius Pilate rendered him not guilty of treason. Uh, that led to a contention between the Jewish leaders and Pilate, as you know, because the Jews wanted Jesus to be executed. We pick up the text in chapter 19, verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, that is Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king poses Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. First thing that we notice about this text is that Pontius Pilate is afraid. And in spite of his pervasive authority to govern the Roman province of Palestine with whatever struck his fancy, Pontius Pilate is afraid. And I wonder if that's not true of pretty much every despot. Every ruler seems to be afraid of something or someone. And so much of what a ruler does is driven by fear. I thought about that with respect to Russia recently, just a week or so ago. The daughter of one of Vladimir Putin's Russian nationalist ideological leaders was murdered by a car bomb. And some thought that that might have been intended for her father, but the woman herself was a public figure and a staunch defender of Putin's vision of a new Russia. And I wonder, you would think that might make Putin just a little bit nervous, wouldn't you? Next time he decided to get into an SUV? Think twice about that. And I wonder how that might affect his decision making as he thought who were his real supporters. Leaders operate often by fear, and Pilate is no different. So what of what or of whom is Pilate afraid? Well, first of all, he's afraid of the people, the Jewish people. Uh, Pilate had concluded that Jesus was guilty of, of no crime worth the death penalty, but he was afraid enough of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people for that matter that he tried to make a mockery of Jesus. He had him beaten, then dressed up in a purple robe and on a crown, with a crown of thorns and paraded him before the crowd and exclaimed, behold the man. He had hoped to evoke some sympathy for this pathetic image of a human being and so that they would conclude enough was enough and that the punishment was sufficient. But to Pilate's great consternation, when he brought Jesus out, verse six, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. These people were impossible as Pilate understood them. Now, what was Pilate going to do? Verse six again, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate tries one more time to reason with a mob. They say, by the way, that the thing that we learn from history is that we never learn anything from history. We still don't understand that you can't reason with a mob. We see it in our cities, we see it in our college campuses, and and we still see politicians and administrators try to reason with mobs. It's about as effective as trying to rationalize with a two-year-old. 
So once again, this doesn't work with Pilate either. Pilate is still stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's afraid of losing control in the face of the Jewish mob. And while he has force behind him with the Roman army, sheer numbers are with the Jews, and he's afraid of the people. He's afraid of the mob. And then we learn, much to our surprise, that Pilate is also afraid of Jesus. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Son of God. Whoa, maybe Pilate hadn't fully grasped the significance of what this Jesus claimed to be and who he actually was. So verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Who are you really? What's this business about being the son of God? Maybe he was getting confused with that this Jesus was somehow more than a mere man. Perhaps like the half-human, half-divine gods of the Greco-Roman world. Is this Jesus in a category like that? Or perhaps he's in another category of being all together. And so it's back to the drawing board. He went, taking Jesus back into his private headquarters. Another run at interrogation seemed to be in order for Pilate. He was afraid of Jesus. But he's also afraid of the emperor, and that's who he had real reason to be afraid of. He, he has been sent by Tiberius to administer this backwater province of the Roman Empire, considered by many at that time to be sort of the armpit of the empire. And Pilate knows that if he screws this up, if he allows an insurrection, if he loses control of these pesky Jews, he wouldn't just lose his job and, and pick up another cushy retirement position working with a, a political think tank or get an endowed chair at an Ivy League institution like a lot of people do. No, he screws this up. He's toast. It's the Roman version of the Gulag Archipelago for him. Or worse, He'd already had a tenuous relationship with the Jews in Israel, and the, and the emperor was keeping a close eye on him. Pilate uh, would have a short leash. If the Jewish leaders would communicate to Rome that Pilate refused to deal with a Jew who was guilty of treason and who was seeking to overthrow the Roman occupation, Pilate knew that he would be in big trouble. This became apparent as the episode continues to unfold. In verse 12, we read, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cry out, cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Boy, if that got back to Rome. Everyone, they said, who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The Jews sense his fear and go after him at just this point. So Pilate's fears drove his decision-making. He feared the Jewish mob. He even feared the possibility that Jesus was more than he appeared to be, and certainly he feared Caesar. So his fears led to his lack of courage and to his decision to succumb to the sentence of execution. If only Pilate feared God and not merely human threats, he might have done the right thing. And history might have viewed him differently, but he knew the right thing, failed to do it. Why? Because he was afraid. Let me uh, throw this in. What are you afraid of these days? 
What are you afraid of? Seriously, I know that you're not in a position of power like Pontius Pilate, uh, but you're still in the position, most of you anyway, of, of making decisions, decisions about your welfare, decisions about the welfare of uh, your loved ones. And to what degree does fear drive your decisions? What are you afraid of? Afraid of what people think of you? Afraid of losing control? over your little domain that you have here? Are you afraid of relinquishing your possessions or assets? Are you, do fear drive, does fear drive your decisions? Pilate was afraid of, of man. Should have been afraid of, of God. The same thing is true for us. But then in verse nine, we find this connection with this conversation with Pilate and Jesus. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So now driven by fear, Pilate plays the authority card. And authority for Pilate translates into mere force. As Paul said in Romans 13, he does not bear the sword in vain. Governing authorities have the power to enforce their will on their constituents. And Pilate possesses that and he presses that issue on Jesus. Why don't you answer me? Don't you know I can have you killed? Why don't you speak in your own defense? I have that kind of authority, he said. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's interesting, the word for authority in this exchange is important. Uh, some translations use the term power. Uh, there are several words in the Greek that could have been employed for either power or authority. One is dunamis. Dunamis is the word from which we get our word dynamite. It has to do with raw power that comes from authority. It's the kind of might makes right kind of power. Another word for power is kratos. That's the power of rule. We think of uh, democracy or plutocracy. That's where that word, those words come from, kratos. And it's a power that can either be used appropriately as it is by God or can be used for wickedness like the devil does it. But the word that's used here is exousia, which is a legitimate authority. It's the word that Jesus used, and he places it in context. He says Pilate exercises legitimate authority. But it's legitimate authority because it's given to Pilate by God. That's what it makes it legitimate. Human government and its exercise of power is legitimate because human government is established by God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgments. So as Christians, we need to recognize that very fact. You don't like who's governing you right now? Uh, you better not say he's not my president. Shame on you, or she's not my representative. Because if you do that, you're rejecting not that person, but you're rejecting God. Because human governing authorities, as flawed as they might be, are instituted by God. 
And Pilate is no different. Jesus here actually affirms Pilate's legitimate authority over himself, over Jesus, either to release him or to crucify him. Pilate's authority is legitimate because it comes from God. That's the good news for Pontius Pilate. And even though Pilate makes the wrong judgment and sends Jesus to the cross, his authority to do so is legitimate because it comes from God. So follow me here. For Pilate, the good news is that his authority comes from God. But the bad news for Pilate is his authority comes from God. Because Jesus says, you would have no authority at all unless you had, it had been given you from above. You can make whatever decision you want, Jesus says, and you have the authority to do so, but the authority you have comes from above. You're worried, Jesus says, about my claim to be the Son of God. You have greater things to worry about because you will be held accountable for your decision, Pontius Pilate. Not by me, Jesus says, but by my Father, Almighty God the judge of all the earth. Does Pilate have authority even over the incarnate Son of God? Yes, he does. But he is accountable for the exercise of that authority. And the same thing is true for every governing official in our world, in our nation or in any other nation. We say we are one nation under God here in the United States of America, and we debate about whether that should be in our Pledge of Allegiance. Let me tell you something, dear friends, whether it's in our Pledge of Allegiance or another another governing document or in no governing document. It doesn't matter whether it's posted in courtrooms or in Congress or no place posted. It can be found nowhere stated, but you can be sure that we are always a nation under God. All nations, all nations are under God. And every single ruler, every single king, every single emperor, every legislator, every judge, every sheriff, every dog catcher, every mosquito control officer, who I never knew existed until I came to Florida. They're all subservient ultimately to the authority of God himself. Whatever authority they have, it all comes from God. Verse 12, we pick it up from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. <laughs> That's the most stunning of all in this exchange between Pilate and the Jews. Was Pilate cynical here as he was when he declared, what is truth? Was he being sarcastic when he exclaimed to them, behold your king? Or was something in him convinced that Jesus was who he actually claimed to be? That he was perhaps in fact the son of God, but that he was most certainly the king of the Jews. Behold your king, 
he tells them. But the Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. Really? Jews would say that? These Jews who had such a rich history of waiting for and longing for the Messiah, the Messiah, the true David's greater son, the Jews who looked at the Roman occupation as merely a temporary misfortune. The Jews who knew in their hearts that the reason there was a Roman occupation was because of their rejection of the reign and rule of God. These are the descendants of those who, in the days of Samuel, clamored for a human king like all of the other nations around them, who Samuel re recognized as rejecting God as king. The descendants, these are, of those who relished in the appointment of Saul as king, who adored and treasured David as the quintessential king of Israel. The descendants of a history, they are, of a divided kingdom, as the prophets prophesied that eventually there would be again one people and one true king. These are the people who would exclaim, we have no king but Caesar. What a bunch of blasphemers. Even as they seek the crucifixion of the one they accuse of blasphemy. What a conundrum, what a hypocrisy, what stupidity. Sin, you know, makes one say and do stupid things. If ever there was a stupid thing to say by Jews, it was we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate exclaims, behold your king. The Jews covered their eyes. They would not behold their king. But what about you? Will you behold your king? He's one and the same. He's the king of kings. And he has real authority, which he exercises justly and powerfully with grace and compassion. Our king of kings sits on the throne of the universe the question is, does he sit on the throne of your life? Or are you like these Jews and say, we have no king but fill in the blank, anybody but God, anybody but Jesus. Psalm 2 comes to mind. This is a psalm that all the Jews should have memorized, I would have thought. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the posture of humanity toward the reign and rule of God. And so they turned their hate against God himself. They turned their intercontinental ballistic missiles in heaven's direction so they can explode and cast away the cords of the reign and rule of God Almighty. Verse 4 of Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Good thing God has a sense of humor, isn't it? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He looks at their posture of antagonism toward heaven, and he just says, it's no more than having some child point a pop gun at me. But his humor only lasts for a moment. 
Verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Guess who that is? I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Ultimately, the authority of the king of kings and lord of lords will prevail against any pretension of authority and antagonism of God. And here's the admonition in verse in Psalm 2. Now therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. There is a choice to make here if you're in a position of authority. Serve the Lord, it says, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Every Jew should have known this psalm by heart, but if they did, and if they took it to heart, they would have never said, we have no king but Caesar. Every Jew should have taken this psalm to heart, and so should you and I. Behold your king, behold your king. Will you take refuge in him? Who is on the throne of your heart these days? Are you willing to submit to the king of kings and lord of lords? That is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we come to you because of who you are, we recognize who we are, Father, that we are frail creatures of the dust. We are sinful by nature. We are antagonistic to you by nature. We are, in fact, rebels, cosmic rebels. But we know, Father, that in grace you have sent us Jesus Christ. And you have installed your Holy One on Zion. You have established him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the faith to entrust our lives with every detail into your loving and compassionate care, that we would be your subjects in this kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.